Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and this week we haven't done one of these planets in the pinch or whatever it's called. Daily planet, perhaps. The, in, um, in your neighbourhood, did in we In your neighbourhood, something like that. Yeah. Friendly um, neighbourhood, local planet. Yeah. What's the acronym for uh, the acronym there? The mnemonic for planets again? Uh, my, my very elderly ma just sits up near... That's it. Yeah, okay. Well. stop now. <laughs> so, so something about Stu's Ma, um, we'll call it the Stu's Ma segment. Um, I'm going to talk about one of the, I believe, one of the neglected planets, one that no one ever talks about, even though it's right there and you can see it, the planet Venus. Oh, we love Venus. We do love the planet of love. Everyone loves Venus. Bananarama yeah. loves Venus. They do. It's shocking blue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm going to find out why we don't talk about it so much, even though it is kind of hanging in the sky constantly. Yes, I'm going to give Venus some love, as is appropriate. Stu, what do you have for us today? Well, speaking of giving things love that don't get enough, I'm going to be talking about female scientists who don't get enough love or attention, even though they do amazing things and often have done so for hundreds of years. I'm going to be talking about Carolyn Herschel. Now, the name Herschel might sound familiar to some people who might have known Mm. a little bit about astronomy. Yes. Um, She's the other Herschel who is actually the sister of William Herschel, who discovered uh, the planet Uranus. Right. Hmm. Excellent. But, uh, yeah, more about her later. Great. Claire. Well, I'm actually talking to a brewer today who has got some really amazing stories about different sorts of yeast. That a, a beer brewer. A beer brewer, yeah, a beer brewer, who has these amazing stories about different sorts of yeast that they use to create some really crazy beers over wow. in Europe. Yeah, and lambic beers. Have you ever heard of lambic beers? Yeah, yeah. You brought that, in some samples today, I see. You wish, no, Chris. No, yeah. You wish. Sadly not. Of course, of course you would. <laughs> so, yeah, you will hear from me and the brew files. Excellent. You brew files. Yeah. Choice brew. Yeah. <sighs> On with the show. All right. Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science, and I am talking about the planet Venus, which I like to think is the neglected planet. I mean, Mars obviously gets all the attention pretty much around here. Well, lately, for sure. Yeah. Venus, though, not that neglected because you can see Venus in the sky. True, but like Pluto is like perhaps one of the second. It's not even a planet, and it gets like more attention. So I want to propose a new slogan, Venus, better than Pluto, because I think it is better than Pluto. Um, and why, why, why do you think Venus doesn't get enough attention? Well, I mean, we'll get to I think I think because it doesn't have some of the features that we look for in, in this. Maybe it's a bit too well known. Can well. I just suggest that Mercury doesn't get enough attention as well? Mercury got a fair bit of attention earlier this year because there was um, some great photos and data sent back from the Messenger spacecraft which crash-landed into Mercury. Um, Messenger, I think its acronym was something like Mercury something, 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 actually did a flyby of Venus early in its life. But, yeah, no one ever talked about that. It was actually named after Mercury, oh. and all this interesting stuff was from Mercury. But 
it actually went past Venus. But considering how long ago that must have been, probably everyone's forgotten know, about it by I now. I know, I know. But yes, look, Venus is important. Venus is, of course, it is the closest planet to Earth, both in distance and in relationship. It is the most similar to Earth. It's got a diameter at 95% that of Earth's. So it's almost the size of Earth. Almost the size of Earth. It is, as you said, Claire, easy to see in the sky. It is, in fact, the brightest thing that you will see in the sky, apart from, of course, the sun and the moon and things like, you know, comets and supernova and police helicopters and those sort of things. But apart from all those, <laughs> Venus is the, it is the morning star, it is the evening star. So it's it? brighter it's, than all the other stars. It's brighter than all the other stars, yeah. even though it is not a star. Yes. Okay. And it used to be quite a big deal. The transit of Venus, which is where Venus goes in front of the sun, you're familiar with that. Yep. That was, of course, the reason that Captain Cook and the Endeavour were sent to the South Pacific with their special sealed orders then to go on and discover Australia. But yeah, the transit of Venus was the original purpose for the mission. Wow. Yeah. And the reason they were doing that, by the way, was so that they could get some accurate measurements of the size of the solar system to work out how far the Earth was from the sun and so, yeah, improve their measurements of astronomy, which, of course, is used for navigation, that sort of thing. But yeah, transit of Venus, big deal back in the day. Very mm. big deal. Yeah. Um, it was also the first planet ever to be visited by space probes. The US Mariner 2 space probe flew past in 1962. Mariner 2, of course, because Mariner 1 blew up on the launch pad. Um, oh, sorry, Mariner 1. It was also the first planet which a space probe was successfully landed. That was Soviet Venera 4. You can probably guess the fate of the first three Veneras um, from the... Didn't make it. They didn't. Well, Venera 3 made it, but it crash-landed and wasn't able to send any information back. So, yeah. Venera 4 was the first one to successfully land in 1967. And in 1975, the Soviet Venera 9 sent us the first ever pictures from another planet, the the rocky landscape of Venus. Hmm. So, yeah, quite significant back in the day. But you don't hear about it much of it today because, yeah, Mars gets all the love. And why does Mars get all the love? I think it's because people are looking for life on Mars and people are hoping to one day send astronauts to Mars. And neither of these things is going to happen with Venus, I'm afraid. Here there's we are talking about Mars again. Yeah, I know. There's, there's not enough songs about life on Venus. No, there isn't. There isn't. Um, so why is there no chance of life now or in the future on Venus? Well, Venus is pretty hostile to life. It has a much thicker atmosphere than Earth to start with. Uh, the atmospheric pressure on Venus is 90 times that at sea level on Earth. So that's equivalent to about one kilometre below the ocean. So it's pretty intense. So Matt already. Damon's not going to stay Matt Damon shaped for very yeah, long. Yeah, we're talking about that. We're talking about Mars again. But yeah, in the, we said <laughs> how in the, the Martian that um, the, the storm at the beginning of the Martian shouldn't have blown him over and blown things around like that. Well, on Venus, a slight breeze would knock you down if you weren't already crushed by the pressures of the atmosphere. It, uh, it does have a lot of clouds, a lot of weather. It's kind of very thick clouds, very hard to see through the clouds. Um, those clouds are sulfur dioxide, so it rains sulfuric acid. Um, yeah, not terribly pleasant. Um, the atmosphere is 96% carbon dioxide. So as you can imagine, it has a fairly strong greenhouse effect. Mm. The, the surface temperature is 462 degrees Celsius, which is hot enough to melt lead. So this makes it the hottest planet in the solar system. It's just hotter than Mercury, which is closer to the sun. sun. Yeah. So, yeah, pretty intense. Was, I should point out that, um, like many physicists, Venus was actually my first introduction to the, to the notion of the greenhouse effect. You learn about Venus and you learn about how hot it is there and you go, oh, that's what, that's what excess carbon dioxide does to you. So, yeah, the notion of climate change on Earth didn't seem that surprising when you look at what's happening on our ne- closest next-door neighbour. Mm. 
But yeah, because this greenhouse effect is so strong, there isn't much temperature difference between day and night on Venus. So it doesn't lose much heat overnight. No, it's, it's pretty well blanketed, which doesn't really matter that much because it has a very, very long day. Uh, now, this is, this is a bit complicated, actually. So it's, um, Venus rotates once every 243 Earth days. It's very slowly rotating. That is actually longer than its year, which is 224.7 Earth days. So its, so it's year is actually shorter than its day? Well, not exactly, because although it's rotating every 243 Earth days, it's rotating backwards to the way it goes around the sun. And as a result, its actual day when the sun rises and sets is only 116 Earth days. So it's kind of, it's spinning one way and it's rotating around the sun oh, another way. Right. So it kind of... Uh, unlike Earth, which is, so, so it's spinning in the opposite direction. It is Earth, spinning the opposite but direction. But moving around yeah. the sun in the same direction as yeah, Earth. Yeah, Right. Now, it's not clear why this happened. I mean, clearly it, was, it formed closer to the, the sun than Earth did, so maybe there was some more weird stuff going on. But also, because it's closer to the sun, it has stronger tidal forces acting on it. In fact, it's believed to be that these tidal forces from the sun is actually slowing it down even further. And because it's got a very thick atmosphere, that would also cause kind of tidal heating and this sort of thing, which changes its rotation rate. So, yeah, it's basically gravity is, is pulling it around in all, kinds of, in all kinds of ways. What else do you want to know about Venus? Uh- Look, this might be a dumb question, but does it have a moon? No. Did it ever have a moon? Never had a moon, not that we know of. Okay. No. But it does, is believed to have volcanoes. They, um, in 2008, the last space probe to visit, which was the European Space Agency's Venus Express, which sounds like a, a band, from the, um, a Netherlands band, Netherlands band or something, um, detected hot spots, which are believed to be evidence of voca- volcanoes. Life, as I said, is very unlikely on Venus. It's quite possible that back in its early day it was similar conditions to that on Earth, but the the runaway greenhouse effect soon took care of that and and made it so inhospitable. Some have suggested that life could actually survive in its atmosphere in a certain zone where it's kind of cool enough for things to live, but um, that's probably unlikely at this point, I have to say. No one wants to go over and check. No, well, there have been... Have, well, no one's actually go, going to go down to the surface and check, but there actually have been plans to say, well, you know, because the atmosphere is like 90 times thicker than Earth's atmosphere, perhaps that if you had like a container with Earth air in it, like for humans to live in, that would float. And so you could actually have mm. a base floating in the clouds among the sulfuric acid. So maybe not a great idea, perhaps. I don't like, know. Like Cloud City. Like Cloud City yeah. in Empire Strikes Back, yes. Bespin. <laughs> um <laughs> So, yeah, it's, and there also have been some plans here and there to have human flybys, but um, there's not much point, really. Robots can do it, I guess, better than we can. The next pro to visit will, will be um, a flyby, probably. There's one called Bepi Colombo being launched in 2017 that will go past Venus on its way to Mercury again, I think. Um, again, it's just the, the fly stop. But the Russians are talking about sending another lander in the 2020s to be called Venera D. So, yeah, Venus... It doesn't get a lot of love, probably won't get a lot of love from humanity in the, in the near future, but um, I think it should be considered, if only as a cautionary tale to what could happen if we let climate change get away from us here on Earth. So, yeah. Unless we find, you know, the fifth element there, and then we have to go down and collect it all. Yeah, that, be guided by those sci-fi movies. <laughs> are, you, are you suggesting the fifth element is love? That's right. That's, you'd find a lot of it on Venus, right. I'm sure. <laughs> right. <laughs> Science, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, 
to boldly go where no radio has gone before. Uh, so a couple of months ago on the show, I was lucky enough to interview space scientist and host of the UK TV show, The Sky at Night, Maggie Adair and Pocock, about her career. And this week, I was reminded by a Google Doodle, which is the little little animations they have on the Google homepage, of the numerous female scientists who often seem to be passed over for fame. Now, the tribute that I noticed was to Hedy Lamarr, who was a world-famous actress, but also a scientist who invented a whole bunch of algorithms which were used in later technologies, which, um, you know, directed uh, radio-controlled torpedoes and things like that. Um, And also some of those algorithms are found in the Wi-Fi code. And Bluetooth and those sort of things. Yeah, all all those sort of uh, wireless um, communications that we rely on so heavily these days. But um, back to space, because we love space on Lost in Science, but we love all science, of course. Um, But I thought we should... Lucky save there. Lucky save. (laughs) Um, We do. We love all science the same. Yeah. But I thought, you know, it was time to to look into another probably lesser-known female scientist that people should know who they are and what they've done. So I was searching around for a non-male scientist to focus on, and I couldn't help but be surprised by one whose name I recognised. But I think it's probably because she shares the name with her brother, who is slightly more famous. I'm talking about Carolyn. Typical that the famous brother takes all of the limelight. Um, I'm talking about Carolyn Herschel, who, along with her brother Friedrich Wilhelm Herschel also known as William Herschel, uh, made some breakthrough discoveries in astronomy. Now, they were German, but they moved to uh, England. Mm-hmm. And William was the first person to sight the planet Uranus, while his sister jotted down observations for him while he stood up on top of a ladder looking through his telescope. But in 1786, Carolyn made a discovery of her own. She had a little... Newtonian sweeper telescope, which is a little tiny one. It's mm-hmm. not like a big one for observing things. It's just you just sort of scan across the sky to aim the big telescope where you want it to go. Yep. So she had one of these little uh, sweeper telescopes, and she spotted a slow-moving object through her sweeper telescope and tracked it as long as she could. And then the next night she picked it up again and tracked it further, and then uh, that prompted her to send letters to other astronomers telling them how they could find it. And what that meant was that she was the first recorded woman to ever discover a comet. Oh, okay. So she actually found a comet, and people knew comets existed, although that took some proving. Um, You know, there was a whole lot of processes to convince people that these objects were in orbit around the sun, but they had such huge orbits that they'd come back every... You know, this is one of the things astronomers did was... uh, And and they were effectively amateur astronomers. No one was getting paid to do this stuff early on. Um, Um, And when did she do this to uh, that was in 1786. 1786, yeah, wow. So um, her discovery led her to be taken into service by King George III of England, who hired her brother and also hired her as his official assistant. So that basically made her 
the first woman recorded to have been paid specifically for scientific services. Excellent. Which is pretty amazing. That is amazing. So after her brother got married, his new wife took over a lot of the household duties that had been Carolyn's um, job at the time, uh, which freed her. Second job. First job was getting paid as the assistant, Uh, right? Well... Yeah, I guess. Um, I'm pretty sure she was also the housekeeper. Mm. It was tough times for uh, women in those days. But that freed up. Once he got married, there was another woman to do all the work. So she got to look at the sky a little bit more. So she paid close attention to studying the night sky. And she discovered a further seven comets. Wow. And then she took it upon herself to cross-check the Astronomer Royal's map of the stars, which had been uh, drawn up and added a further 550 stars that had been emitted from the Astronomer Royal's existing version. Fantastic. Wow. So how many Herschel comets are there out there? They're, well, they only name one comet per person. So there's a whole bunch that she discovered that don't bear her name, but there is not there is a comet with her name attached Do, to it. Does she get to name the other ones then, or does someone else pick them? I think the Royal Astronom- Astronomical Society um, named them. Okay. But uh, so her brother actually passed away and she returned to Germany where she was born and she continued her astronomical studies uh, and she focused mainly on cataloging visible nebulae. So she okay. looked, looked through telescopes and I, I suspect that her eyesight may have been failing by this point. So she wasn't so good at picking out the tiny little stars that were, um, you know, Hardly visible. But so nebulae, they're kind of, they're the little clouds of gas. They look like kind of blurry stars. Yeah. So she probably saw lots of them. If she well, did. possibly. Uh, but she was going. She an was, extra 500 nebula. Yeah, no, she was she was going by on, you know, on maps that yep, had okay, already existed. Yep. And she was just confirming these things. And she kept submitting her findings back to the Astronomer Royal back in England. And in 1828, she was awarded the Royal Astronomical Society's Gold Medal. And she was admitted as an honorary member. Now, no other woman won the Royal Astronomical Society's gold medal again until Vera Rubin won it in 1996. Wow. Wow. So there's, you know, 150-odd years there. That's amazing. uh, Where she was the only woman to have ever been awarded the uh, Astronomical Society's gold medal. Fantastic. Um, Well, not fantastic. I mean... It, there should have been more in between, yeah, but, yeah. but, but uh, for, for someone in 1828 to um, yeah. to win something which was, you know, in, in the realm of men-only uh, science. She must have been pretty bloody amazing. I'd say she probably was. She also was elected to the Royal Irish Academy, and she was awarded a gold medal for science from the King of Prussia. So Prussia being Germany at the what's time. part of yeah. Germany now. She died in 1848 and is buried in Germany and her tombstone bears an epitaph written by herself before she died, which reads, The eyes of her who is glorified here below turned to the starry heavens. So she, you know, imagines that she's still looking up at the night sky. So she is commemorated by having a crater named after her on the moon, which is called the C. Herschel Crater. There is also a W. Herschel Crater named after her brother. Okay. And she's also got an asteroid which bears her middle name, which is Lucretia. Oh. Flying around. So the asteroid Lucretia is named after Carolyn Herschel. So there we have it. Another great woman in science whose name we should probably all know, and now you do. And not just because of her brother. And not just because of her brother.
have John Selton in the studio Hello. with me. Hello, John. Hello, how's it going? I'm well, I'm well. How are you? Yeah, really good. Good. John is a brewer at Hawker's Beer in Reservoir in Melbourne. John, I brought you into the studio because I really want to talk mm-hmm. a little bit about the science of beer. Sure. And I know we've had some conversations in the past about it. Mm-hmm. I've heard about this beer, Lambic beer, yep. and it's specifically European. Mm-hmm. Yep. Is that right? Yeah, specifically from Belgium, actually, you know, um, uh, mainly around Brussels in the Seine Valley area and really geographically specific, actually. Sort of like Champagne. Very much France. so. I mean, Champagne is, you know, it's protected, uh, you know, the name Champagne is protected, but for more scientific reasons, actually, Lambic is particularly geographically specific, you know, because of the type of bacteria that are used in it, the mm. fermentation techniques, it's it's really tied to place lambic. Right. Well, okay. Well, maybe let's go back to the start. Can you help us look at the differences between um, what a lambic beer is and what like your old Carlton? Sure. Carlton yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, draft. I mean, in, in traditional beer brewing, it's a highly automated, highly industrialized, very, very controlled process, right? right. You know, it's all about... It's a, it's a biological process, though. It's about creating sugars from malted barley or from some sort of cereal, extracting them into a, into a liquid, boiling that liquid, adding hops, inoculating it with yeast, with just one single strain of yeast. And it has to be only one That's strain right, of yeast. yeah, yep. a really pure strain of yeast. Yep. So there's only one species living in there that behaves in a very predictable way and yep. turns it from this sugary, sweet wort into beer in a very quick period, you know, as right. fast as possible. That's where you get your alcohol content from. Exactly, yep. and the bubbles as well. Oh, and course. the carbon dioxide yeah, from fermentation. Yeah, yeah. And the whole process is sort of streamlined and, and made to happen as fast as possible and as predictable as possible with few off flavors and as cleanly as possible and it, there's a real contrast between that and and what happens in in lambic beer production okay so let's look at lambic beer yep. how how is that different like sure well one of the one of the most obvious things is the flavor i mean the flavor of a lambic is is utterly different from what most people would describe as beer bitter malty hoppy flavors that mm. we normally associate with beer a lot of them are massively transformed or not even present in lambic lambic's really? actually described by a lot of people as like a cereal wine um, so one of the one of the first things you notice when you take your first sip of your first ever lambic is the intense sourness. It's intensely sour, very very acidic, and it has a huge range of different flavours that don't mm-hmm. exist in any other type of beer. Some of which are fruity, pineapple-y, Some described less romantically as being goaty or like <laughs> horse blanket or leathery or hay-like. Or yeah, slightly um, old sort of cellar flavors um, in the beer as well. So I imagine there would be some people out there just like stinky cheeses love the horse blanket beer. Yeah, I think I think lambic is the yeah is the most intense blue stinky cheese of the <laughs> beer world. Yeah, wow. yeah. yeah. Oh, that's that is amazing. So, yeah. what is it in the process that's creating all these amazing flavors? The sourness, mm-hmm. the horse blanket. It's the biological part of the process. So yeah. the brewing side of things is done in a very similar way. You know, okay. so cereals are mixed. You know, usually yep. malted barley. The same sort of cereals. Then? Well, in lambic production, they tend to use a lot more wheat, a lot more raw, unmalted wheat than what is typically used in most normal beers. But the, the brewing process more or less is similar. You know, there are some technical differences, but you're basically still making this this sweet, sugary solution from a cereal that's um, enzymatically, you, you're converting the starch in cereal into sugars, putting that into a, into a solution, and then and that's when the process starts to diverge. So in normal beer production, that is then 
cooled very quickly, inoculated with yeast and allowed to ferment for maybe four or five days before it's conditioned and packaged. In lambic brewing though, that sugary sweet solution is pumped into these very special containers or these special vessels called cool ships. Cool ships? Cool ships, yeah. They're they're basically, instead of putting them through a, a plate heat exchange as a normal brewery would, they pump them into, it's a very old very traditional way of doing it. They pump right. it into shallow copper vessels in the okay. attics of these breweries. So the whole top level of these breweries are occupied by these shallow copper vessels. Wow. That are filled that with That have been wort, there for years. That have been there for a long, long time. Right. All the louvers are left open on the roof to allow the airflow to come through and to naturally cool the wort. Now, this is a normal brewer's nightmare, right? Because with that air comes all... All the natural microflora, all the microbes. Yeah, exactly. Are just pouring in through the windows and landing on the beer because the copper, um, cool ship, yep, cool Cool ship are open. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they're these open, shallow vessels, and all this Ah. stuff is these 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 attics are quite things to see as well. They're covered in spiders' webs. They haven't (gasps) been renovated for years. Quite sort of dishevelled looking, and the wort's allowed to cool up there overnight. And it just exchanges heat with the air and becomes naturally inoculated by all the the natural microbes that are just floating around in the air. Wow. So I've heard the word spontaneous fermentation being bandied around when Mm -hmm. they talk about lambic beer. So is that what they're referring to? Yeah, exactly. So for us in my brewery, we, you know, we, all of our fermentations are in enclosed, exceptionally clean environments in enclosed cylindroconical fermenters where nothing can get in there Mm. other than those exact yeast varieties that we want to put in there. In lambic production, it's really open slather. So anything that's floating around in the air settles out into these cool ships and inoculates the yeast with just the, the wild bacteria and yeast strains. It's interesting, it's only really brewed between October and April every year. Okay, so that's in the Northern Hemisphere, is it? Yeah, so the cooler weather, usually around 15 degrees, you know, not much warmer than that. And that's the time when the air is full of these type of microbes that, that make that make the magic of lambic sort of happen. So after um, the spontaneous fermentation process mm-hmm. where you've, you've got yep. the louvers out and all yep. the microbes are just sort of like nicely settling mm-hmm. into the wort, yep. what's the next part of the process? Well, this is another part that's completely different from normal beer production. That inoculated beer is now pumped into wooden casks, so wooden barrels. And that would never happen in normal beer fermentation. I mean, with a few exceptions, most beer is just brewed in big stainless steel vats, giant, huge stainless steel vats. But this one's filled into these wooden casks and... Like wine. Like wine, exactly. Very, very similar to wine. In fact, a lot of them are old wine casks. And then an amazing transformation happens. And it's a process that takes up to 24 months. So the beers that I make are generally ready within, you know, two weeks to drink from the day I've brewed it. With a lot of styles of lambic beer, these fermentation processes take, yeah, up to two years. So we're talking years that these beers Mm. are brewed. Yep. And yeah, during that period, there are all these changes to it. So at the beginning, uh, you know, for those first couple of weeks, fermentation doesn't even really set in until the Saccharomyces strains start kicking off, until yeah. the yeast st- strains start doing their thing. They'll they'll work for a couple of months, and the barrels will start to foam and ooze out of their out of their little holes in the top. Wow. You know, all the you know all the kraus and all the the sort of the yeasty foam on the top of the beer will ooze out of there and. Actually, that physical process of oozing helps seal the barrels against further ingress of oxygen. It'll dry around the the corks in the barrels and and seal them up. 
Then there's a super interesting period where the beer, it's what the Belgians call, it gets sick. It actually, <laughs> it actually there's a microbe in it called Pediococcus, Pediococcus damnus, my, one of my favourite <laughs> named microbes in, in, in brewing. My beer's got the damnness. Damn Pediococcus. <laughs> and, and it'll make the beer go sick. It'll make the beer go the texture of mucus, um, sort of viscous and ropey and, and horrible. And that's because of sort of these polysaccharides that these, that these particular bacteria that create. Right. So they'll do that for a few months. The yeah. beer will go all gelatinous and disgusting. But the beer comes back from that. <laughs> it does. It gets better. And, you know, they say, you know, what make, doesn't kill you makes you stronger and the beer's better afterwards. So wow. The, it has those, to go through that process. It then. does. Yeah, 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 yeah. So most sour beer goes through this sick, ropey process. And then those Britannomyces strains, those wild yeast strains, they'll then start to kick in and they'll start to metabolize a lot of these polysaccharides created by the previous bacteria that was working, the Pediococcus, and they'll start to use that as a food source, start to break it down. The beer will get better. It'll become healthy again. (laughs) Didn't even need a doctor. Yeah. (laughs) And it'll go back to the normal consistency of beer. It's quite a shock for a lot of these beers are being brewed now by, you know, craft breweries all around the world that they're rediscovering a lot of these traditional techniques it's been happening in the states for a fair few years now it's making its way into australia and brewers will sort of go through a period of mild distress when they see their beer (laughs) turn all ropey and mucus like for a few months until it until it gets better until the breath kicks in so i have to ask you john when do you think we're gonna see the australia's first lambic beer look it's already happened actually (gasps) yeah so there's lots and lots of breweries in Australia who have been experimenting with these types yeah. of beers, with these types of different bacteria, you know, um, lactic acid producing bacteria and non-saccharomyces yeasts, a couple in Melbourne even. So um, Boat Rocker in yeah. Brayside, I mean, they've, they've, they've just a couple of days ago, I was there drinking a great, um, a great beer style called Blinovice, which although not a lambic, has a lot of similarities in that it's very sour, it uses lactic acid bacteria and and it's a beer I'd had before. I drank this same beer maybe six months previously, and it tasted entirely different to when I last had it because <laughs> of the action of that Britannomyces doing wow. its thing over this past six months, very, very slowly creating more metabolites, you know, that, that, that change the flavour of that same beer over the course of a couple of months. Oh, my goodness. Um, thank you so much for coming in and shedding some light on Lambic beers. I feel like a nice sour brew is in order now. Sounds good. Thanks, John. Thanks a lot. See you, Claire. Bye. All right, that is it for another episode of Lost in Science. We have heard about Venus. We've given some love to Venus. We've given some love to Carolyn Herschel, um, great astronomer of the of the late eighteenth and early nineteenth century. Nineteenth century, yeah, yeah, yep. And we have we have um, looked to a different kind of. Well, I was going to say there's like galaxy hops and those sort of things. So maybe it's some. Some beery. You were drawing a tenuous link, but there it is. Yes. Well, you know, and if you drink enough beer, you can lay on your back and look up at the night sky. It makes it all a bit better, doesn't mm. it, Stu? This is true. Uh, Lost in Science. It is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We, you can contact us on, on email, Gmail, that is, specifically at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. You can download our podcasts from the web, or you can listen to us on the radio next week. And once again, Stu, Claire and Chris will get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 
3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.